Greetings from the Commonwealth of Kwanzaa Society's talk show. Greetings and Happy New Year. Happy 2022. I'm really happy to get back with you guys today. I uh, had a little bit of a, a, a COVID issue with the family that I had to take care of. Um, tested and tested negative, doing well with that. So that's a good thing. So we are anxious to get back into what we're doing. So a uh, greeting from the Kwanzaa Society's talk show. This show has been created to bring to light the need for a centralized culture in the African-American community and to show how many of the struggles in the black community, and I think ultimately in America, because I think uh, we wouldn't be as polarized if the black population within this country had its own economic power base uh, to work, to deal with to deal from, uh, to bargain with. I think it definitely, you would have a bigger, much bigger tax base with a economically cooperative-minded and active black population. I see the lack of a central culture as one of the issues it does it that, you know, that con- confounds that ability. Um, even with the talented, educated, productive black people that currently occupy uh, this area. Uh, this show has uh, been created to show that the lack of a centralized culture, a lack of a central African-based culture in the black race as it exists in Western civilization and the Western hemisphere is a problem. And I'm going to use that show to do that. My name is Clarence Jones, your host today. And again, I will use my show to make a case for using the fall holiday of Kwanzaa and turning it into a year-round system, uh, and, which would be a platform that could unify black people and to give them a better power base to work around. And so it would be turned into a year-round system. And, of course, a legitimate question is, why did I choose Kwanzaa? Why do I think Kwanzaa would be such an efficient platform and such an efficient tool. Fair question. Kwanzaa is of Africa, but not specific to a particular tribe of Africa. And if you realize how we got here, we got here through tribalism. We got here through different villages and tribes of war chiefs literally fighting other Africans and selling them to uh, white European traders who at the time were not an economic power. They were not an economic or military power at the time that they were coming uh, to trade slaves with African war chiefs or chiefs. And I just realized this uh, recently. I hadn't, hadn't thought about this. It's literally the destruction of African civilization, uh, and, and not that the European caused the destruction of the African civilization, as we, as I always get into Chancellor Williams, the destruction of black civilization. If anything, it were, you know, they were the invading and integrating, they're both invading and integrating Arabs that started that process. But had that process not have, 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 have occurred, the dominance and prowess of Western civilization probably would not exist. I think it would have still happened but not to the extent that they were able to, because realize they took millions upon millions of black laborers 
from Africa to America with existing technology. So not to say that if those Africans had stayed in Africa, Africa would be, you know, the continent of Africa would be as dominant economically as Western civilization. Possibly. It's certainly possible. But clearly, the technology and the inventions, definitely a lot of those came out of Great Britain and simultaneously, you know, found itself in the Western Hemisphere with African cheap labor, which made America a powerhouse. And so you definitely have to understand that it is the destruction and the fall of African civilization that really allowed the emergence of Western civilization, particularly as a dominating force. Uh, they probably, I, I think they would have done well regardless, but, you know, with, with that cheap labor and then the warring factions within Africa, just like there were warring factions within China, that's like, just like there were warring factions in India at the time, definitely gave the opportunity for Western civilization. So there were many indigenous populations that were warring with each other while Western civilizations simply came up with a, a, a system that worked well for them. Didn't necessarily work well for, for poor people, didn't necessarily work well for slaves, didn't necessarily work well for women, but it worked well for, for uh, what they, who they were before slavery and who they were after slavery are two different things. And so that comes from being able to get uh, the slave population out of Africa that started with the destruction of, of basic civility and civil society within Africa. So uh, these are one of the reasons why Kwanzaa is, is a, I think, a great platform that can absolutely help uh, and actually help America in, in, in its new quest uh, for dominance. I think America can be dominant. It just will be dominant in a different way compared to years past. Uh, I think it will have to uh, take advantage of the cultural strength of other ethnic groups globally, work with them in a way that benefits them and Western civilization um, more so than any time in its history. So they have to come up with deals that work well, not only for just themselves, I'm talking about white people and, and the white power structure in America. We definitely have to do things that work for us, but we have to come up with better ways of making sure whatever our policies are, whatever our enterprises are, where those people are going to benefit almost as much as we do. When we, can, when we create that environment, then we will create a second American empire, most definitely. Uh, and we won't have the Chinese seemingly breathing down our throats as far as technology, as far even in Olympics, they're killing, they're really coming in the Olympics. They're everywhere. You know, they, they, they have the engineers. They're, they're buying real estate. And see, as an athlete, I welcome the challenge. I'm, I'm saying we, we as a country, as Western civilization, haven't tapped into all of our resources as much as we can and should. And the black community is definitely an untapped resource that can be utilized. Just think of what you do with Africans individually as athletes, as individuals, as entertainers, as great leaders, Dr. King, Malcolm X, all these great leaders, you know, you agree with them or disagree with them politically, we've, we've created, we've, we've had some great black people to come through this country. And so 
<clears throat> my point is create a system, uh, a strong black cultural power base can be utilized for the whole country and its economy, I believe. And so, okay, uh, again, what is Kwanzaa? Kwanzaa is of Africa, but not particular to a particular tribe. It is a first fruits harvest celebration that does not infringe upon religion, nationality, geography, or ethnicity. The African peoples need an ancestry-based system that all black people can rally around, which would lead to better camaraderie, more familiarity, which would lead to better continuity, which would lead to more camaraderie, which would lead to an enhanced ability to organize, coordinate, orchestrate, and the results of all these processes are what is called unity. Now, when you talk about orchestrate, coordinate, and, 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 and synchronize, all that's very good for military. You know, when you look at the Tet Offensive in 1969, that actually was the, the changing of the guard. That really should have changed the world in, in the sense that a powerful nation like the United States could be caught off guard militarily. Um, and, and though the Tet Offensive in, in, in the Vietnam War was a military failure, as we, I think we've talked about this before, it was a military failure. Uh, the, the, the offensive was stopped and was neutralized, but it was a political slam dunk for the Vietnamese. At that time, we were the United States government, and we were like, yeah, we're killing them. We're, 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 this war is going to be over. Soon. It was going to be over soon. And it's going to be, you know, a couple of months. We're killing them at this rate. And the reality was, and one of the soldiers of that time said, when you kill, when you're searching for a Viet Cong who were fighting in the North Vietnamese, and then the, the, the Vietnamese fighting in the South were called Viet Cong, when you're trying to find, and they were very good at stealthy fighting, so you're trying to fight the Viet Cong, you shoot into someone's house or hut or village or whatever they lived in, trying to get one, you mistakenly kill two. Well, whoever's left is now a Viet Cong. That's what the U.S. soldier special forces was trying to explain. You're killing the people, you're killing a lot of civilians, and you're actually helping the cause of the Viet Cong. And so that was, um, I remember seeing a documentary on that. But anyway, the, it was, in, in social studies, you, you kind of misled about the Tet Offensive of 1968. Think, okay, the United States got their embassy attacked and un, unex, unsuspected, un, you know, an unexpected attack that they threw back, and that was the end of it. They show pictures of U.S. soldiers fighting in the embassy, which is kind of shocking. You know, that was supposedly not behind, that was supposedly behind the, the battle of uh, the uh, battle lines, the, that was supposed to be a demilitarized area, meaning an area that there are no Vietnamese here. There are no Viet Cong here. There are no communists here. We're fighting communists up to the north. And so, but you're, you're fighting them in the U.S. Embassy in Saigon, now Ho Chi Minh City. That's not what really happened. What really happened was the Tet Offensive was a simultaneous attack by North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese forces, South Viet Cong forces, I think 60 or 30 South Vietnamese cities were attacked simultaneously. And so 
someone asked a brilliant question, how the hell could something like this happen? To move, to, to be able to, to put yourselves in position to attack 30 cities or 60 cities, you have to move troops. You have to move equipment. You, you shouldn't be able to do that without the United States seeing you do this. And so the answer was, these communists were around you all the time. The people selling you Coke was a communist, was Viet Cong. The person selling you a hamburger was a Viet Cong. The person driving you in those little buggies was possibly a communist. And so what the Tet Offensive alluded to was a cultural synchronization and a discipline and an organization that existed within the Vietnamese race that they've always been like this. So this is nothing new. They fought the Japanese, the Chinese, the French. They've always been like this. I, I had a nice documentary I heard about them. And they, you know, they're very stubborn people, but they're also very unified people. And so when I look at Kwanzaa, and when I still, when you look at Tet, the Tet Offensive, any ethnic group that utilizes its culture and is that unified, that organized, that coordinated, you simply apply that to economics. You don't then need force, actually, in my opinion. So. If you, in my readings and studies, all the ethnic groups that have been successful—Jews, uh, um, German, uh, Chinese, Indians, Korean, Japanese—all these ethnic groups execute exactly like this. They just don't use weapons; they use economics. And so, the thing, the glue that gives them the ability to do this is culture. And so, uh. Culture is a key ingredient that's been lacking in our population and been at the root of many of its struggles. And it's hampered its ability uh, to deal with adversities, struggles, and its enemies as one force. So I want to use my show today to make a case for the need of a central culture in the black population and for the practicality of using Kwanzaa as that cultural platform. I'm going to cite history, my personal life as a pro athlete, current events I've read, uh, uh, current uh, books I've read, and current events as illustrations of that need of a centralized culture. Uh, now, before we get into the program, I'm excited today about the book that we kind of started before Christmas. Uh, that I'm gonna I'm gonna roll with this book, and I'm gonna read excerpts from this book. Uh, it's amazing how I've been so impacted and affected by books I read, uh, you know, decades ago. Uh, again, we're looking at black men, obsolete, single, dangerous, the African-American family in transition, essays in Discovery, Solution, and Hope by Haki R. Madahubute. I have a hard time pronouncing his name. I'm just going to call him Professor Haki. Um, great book. Shocking because <laughs> there's so many things that I've been thinking about with the, in the, within the last uh, five years and writing about that I see I've kind of gotten it from this book, which is pretty cool. So uh, my I, it, it, the thing I like about this book, Dr. Hockey's book, gives a lot of pro, uh, gives a lot of credibility and practicality to my ideas. So um, 
we are going to get into it, but first we got to get into routine, structure. If I'm making such a big deal about culture and saying how it's a crucial uh, element that's lacking in the black race, which it is, let's talk about culture. Okay, what is culture? And, of course, culture is a sense um, it is a game plan for people. Culture is a rendezvous place for ethnic groups. Without it, uh, it's hard for them to collectively do anything economically, socially, politically, uh, security-wise. Uh, without this rendezvous place, culture, um, it, it, it's hard for anybody to do anything. It gives you daily rules and regulations of a race. It gives you, it's a playbook. You know, culture can give you a serviceable dynamic between genders. Only culture can give you, can organize you around uh, economics. Only culture, uh, an ethnic group. Only culture can probably dispute, li uh, distribute life-saving societal developing knowledge. Only culture can create symmetry between the classes within a race. Uh, you know, the, the streets have very little human capital. Interesting. I, I, I don't know what the... I, now, I wrote this down. The, the streets have very little human capital, meaning there are not that many doctors and lawyers in the streets. So um, if you're an ethnic group and you have a chasm and a disconnect between your wealthy and your you're you're um you're you're poor, you're educated, you're poor, you're educated, you're working class, you're 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 old and you're young, you have a hard time doing anything big because that's where your human capital is. Now I, I say this with a grain of salt talking about there's very little human capital in the streets. To operate in the streets you can't be a dumb person. So that's another thing that a central culture, uh, centralized culture could help an ethnic group. And, you know, there may be organized crimes, criminals. If you get into organized crime, what are organized crimes? What are gangsters? What is the mafia? These are businessmen. There are not people that go around just shooting each other. Now, they utilize people that go around shooting each other. They utilize people who are sadistic, sociopath killers, but they have, first of all, they have rules in organized crime, particularly the mafia. If you're shooting the wrong person, you, at the wrong time, you may get shot. You usually have to get permission to shoot somebody. You can't shoot certain men, made men within the mafia, because now, one of the reasons why you can't shoot made men, these guys are earners. They're helping someone to make money. So I, I just want to put in, make that, that point clear, because I wrote down, you know, only culture can give good symmetry between the races and the, in, within a race, within the classes, meaning rich, poor, working class men and women. But I don't want to forget and overlook the reality of human capital in the poor, particularly the streets. And so there are a lot of poor people that have a lot of knowledge uh, that can be utilized by the ultimate group. As a matter of fact, this isn't an ethnic thing, but this is a country thing. During World War II, we were concerned about sabotage 
because at, at some point it's about getting uh, goods and services and weapons to Europe to fight Hitler. Well, that's shipping. Well, that's the docks. Well, that's an opportunity for Germans to sabotage the docks. So one of the only re- ways the United States government and military could secure its own docks in New York, Boston, Philadelphia, wherever we had docks and shipping, was to make a deal with Charlie Lucky Luciano, who was the head of, the, of a crime family. He was head of, one of the heads of the mafia. Uh, the five, you know, the crime families in New York, I think it's Bugsy Siegel, Lucky Luciano, uh, Frank Costello, and Meyer Lansky. Uh, they were part of the commission. So they made a deal with Lucky Luciano, and that helped us to, uh, you know, secure our docks so we could conduct our World War II with Germany and Japan. So when we talk about human capital and, and we talk about ethnic groups, there are human capital on those lower levels with the poor people that an ethnic group needs to utilize. Okay? So, um, culture can create symmetry between genders uh, because it has rules for genders. Um, specific, only, only a culture can love a specific people. I mean, it teaches you how to work with each other, value each other. Um, government can protect our children, but it's still inequality. Because a, co- you know, a, a culture can teach you to love each other. Only culture can teach you how to love your neighbor. Culture can make you a better citizen. Culture can teach you why education is important. The groups, the groups of, again, we talk about this, and, and there's no reason not to bring it up again. The ethnic groups, there are ethnic groups in turn of the century New York that had poor Italian people, poor Irish people, and poor Jews. Same schools, same poverty, still the same outcome. Most of the Jews became doctors and lawyers and dentists. The Irish became policemen and firemen. The Italians became laborers. That is culture. And so culture gives you, it gives you a value of specific things. So these are the things culture can do for you and why it's so important. And again, we're, I'm going to literally read excerpts from the book today. I'm so excited. I want to get out. I want to get through my regular platform uh, to get to that point because I think it's important. It's going to show. Uh, I, I think the excerpts from Dr. Haki's book basically make my points that I'm reading through right now, that I'm going through right now. And so um, I'm going to continue to do that. Okay. Um, we talk about the Jewish group. When we talk about an ethnic group that a centralized culture has been a, a, a major help, you have to talk about the Jewish people and, and, their, and their race their struggles, their ability to overcome their struggles, and what have you. This group has been consistently persecuted throughout the centuries. Going back to the Middle Ages, they were used as tax collectors and representatives of the feudal lords and kings of Poland. They were the economic overseers in Eastern Europe. And so now, the king is in in Poland, and he's sending people out in Eastern Europe towards, towards Russia, towards Ukraine, to, you know, operate his, um, his authority 
and his system on, on his behalf, which, of course, this is wealth that's going to be extracted and given to him. The Jews were utilized uh, as key agents of doing this because, number one, since they were Jewish and different, they never were accepted by the people of Eastern Europe. And so they were different. So that was an asset for the overlords and lords and kings of Poland, of other parts of Europe. And so that's where they... But now, of course, resentment um, grew because of that. And so, so we have the, the overseers in Ukraine for the feudal laws in Poland, which resulted in what is called anti-Semitism. That's where there are people that were resentful of Jewish... Uh, and then they were resentful of Jewish success, uh, their, their quality of life, and the fact that they were working for the king. So pogroms began to occur in Europe. And a pogrom is basically a lynching, but it's something that's been ethnic uh, where they're targeting Jews. And they're targeting Jews in specific areas. And I think a pogrom, if anyone they catch, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to just be the male. But um, usually probably was, because they were considered the, the most threatening. Because of that re resentment and the success of Jews and their unwillingness to assimilate have impacted the people. Um, so th th that's kind of starting it out. The knights and lords and other vassals resented them. The, the alienation of Jews um, was coming from all directions because of their economic prowess. At some point, they were seen as a threat to the kings and they were expelled. So this was interesting. They would be run out of town, expelled, and uh, then they would have economic downturns. Then they would bring them back, and then they would expel them again. So this was this is the king now. Um, because of the strong cultural dynamic and the refusing to go away from their culture, they became hated by European populations, the church, uh, and because of the revenues the Jews were taking away from the church. So now we have to realize that only are they doing well economically, that money, if they were regular church-going people, would be going to the church. So now the church doesn't really like them. And so it all, you know, this, is, this, this became a, almost a, a broken record, you know, a repeating thing with the Jewish population. The Jews were routinely expelled, as we said before, and the, this caused them to scatter globally. So as they were expelled from Europe, I, I can tell you this, most um, Americans don't understand how many Jews lived in Spain. And that when you, you think of a Jew, you think of someone from Eastern Europe, and that's it. If anything, there were more Jews in Spain. That's how vast they were as far as, you know, they were all over the place. And once they were expelled, they went all over the world. Now, this created what is called the Jewish diaspora, which the anti-Semitists uh, talk about being Jewish conspiracies and how they're constantly working behind the scenes against the interests of their nations, and, you know, they racialize everything and, you know, become something very prejudiced against Jews. But the fact of the matter is, since they were persecuted, 
and expelled from Europe. And once they broke out into different pockets globally, and now remember how they are, they don't, they do not uh, assimilate well. They stick to their culture and they stick to their cultural traditions. So now they become a threat to wherever they go globally. So they all feel this alienation making them stronger to who? A stronger connection to who? Other Jews globally. So that's where the Jewish diaspora and that political, economic, really this economic um, diaspora exists. Um, uh, World War, Post-World War One, the Nazis took advantage of the anti-Semitism and, you know, it was someone to blame, someone to pick on. And so, And so at that point, we have, you know, the Holocaust and the rounding up of Jews and the persecution of Jews. Uh, and, and so, and here's, their, their strong cultural values help them from the get-go, meaning they valued education, they valued uh, new technologies. If you look at all the new uh, movements, and even technologies, they were heavily, um, they were heavily populated by Jews. Communism, uh, communism, communism used to be called Jewish Bolshevism. Uh, many intellectuals were Jewish. Um, anything new, anything with, with regards to technology, for thousands of years, Jewish people have definitely been the forefront of that giving them a prowess, giving them an economic strategic advantage on everything they do. Computers, uh, even with music, uh, they, they tend to, you know, there are a lot of Jews that were involved in jazz. There were a lot of Jews that were involved in hip-hop, a lot of Jews that were involved even in blues. As far as the, the agents, as far as getting their music promoted, they just are, uh, as an ethnic group, they definitely gravitate towards anything new and innovative. And of course, new and innovative things usually lend to economic uh, benefits from that, either by you doing it, being a operator of it, being an agent of it, being someone who owns a business in it. There are a whole lot of benefits for being a part of new technology. So that's part of Jewish culture. Uh, they are a culture that loves to debate each other. They have rules. They have a certain special rules that they go over. Um, basically, in their culture, owning a business is akin to a religious activity. So it's there for some reason, they regard doing business as very serious and very spiritual and very cultural. Therefore, it means they do not necessarily want to shortchange another Jew. They do not necessarily want to um, do something bad economically to another Jew. They may do it, but I can tell you this, it's frowned upon by the overall Jewish community. They've always been like this. So these are the strong cultural um, tools, cultural components of Judaism that has helped them over the decades, over the thousands of years. And when you talk about the end of World War II and the end of the Jewish Holocaust and the beginning of 
of the Jewish state, you're talking that state was mostly agrarian. Israel was agrarian. Jews were urban people because they were not allowed to own land. They were not allowed to vote. They were not allowed to be married. This goes back to the Middle Ages. This goes back thousands of years. So they were forced to be the middleman and the brokers. So they, it forced them to be good with numbers. Apparently, they, not, they were not always like this. Uh, Dr. Thomas Sewell, in his, book, in his books, where he looks at number, different numbers of different ethnic groups, uh, that said Jews were not necessarily the, the smart guys all the time. And so they kind of forced themselves to be that because of the situations they were in, not being able to own land, uh, not being able to vote, not being able to take uh, political power. They were brokers and middlemen. And so they had to be dominant with understanding the numbers. And so that's something that has been passed down generationally to Jews. Uh, so uh, they're the middlemen, weren't allowed to really own land. When they did, they, had, they, had, they, had, they were subject to pilgrims where people would go and kill them on their land, what land they did have. Really, the safest places for them were the inner city, strategically. Uh, it was around the king. They were making money for the king. So they were, they were a better chance to be safe there. That's them for several thousand years. So now when we move on to the creation of Israel, the state of Israel, this was an agrarian state. How did they do this? And, of course, the answer is they taught themselves to be agrarian, even though historically they were not. So they were urban intellectual, administrative type of people. Israel, as it started, had kibbutzes. They had to start planting food, sharing this and sharing that. And that's how Israel first started. And so only a strong culture can uh, put people in position where they can learn something new. And, and again, of course, tra culture transfers life-saving strategies anyway from generation to generation it may not have translated uh life-saving agrarian strategy what it did translate and transfer uh, down to the culture is unity oriented things unity oriented ways that help them when they're in a new situation to operate as one productive group I know that wouldn't necessarily be the case with black people. You have a lot of arguing. Someone doesn't like this person. This person thinks they know everything. The person who is, who's on the farm may or may not be listened to. A lot of infighting. And not to say that Jews are not. They're extremely, they're, they're probably the most diverse ethnic group out there. There are lots of different types of Jews. They come argue with each other. That's literally part of their culture. They debate everything with each other. Religion, everything. It's, it's literally part of their culture. They take a time in their family um, gatherings literally to talk and literally debate. And so these, you know, this is, a, this is not necessarily, this is not Japan. This is not a people that's that homogeneous where everyone thinks the same Everyone acts the same. On the contrary, they have a lot of differences of opinion, but their culture 
allows them to work through that. Okay, so we've gotten into uh, an ethnic group that has benefited from a strong centralized culture. We'll now get into our my group uh, where a decentralized culture has been a source of great struggle and has aided their adversaries and rivals and in some instances aided their enemies. So we're going to talk about the black community and uh, not having and how not having a centralized culture has hurt them. And so we'll talk about black civilization. The great author, Chancellor Williams, wrote in his book, The Destruction of Black Civilization, the West African population who occupied that area were in fact refugees from East Africa, where they built their own singular societies and civilizations. Uh, with an unknown centralized language, which is a pivotal part of culture, uh, and culture. Because of natural disaster, the immigration of Arab population from Asia Minor, they began migrating across the continent to the western portion of the continent. As that happened, they began splitting up and going into different parts of West Africa, forming their own tribes, uh, with their own tribal languages and cultures. So again, we talked about, uh, I, and, and I asked an African from that area, uh, from West Africa, if you live in a tribe and there's another tribe a mile away, you have your own language, you have your own culture, they have a different tribe, different language, different culture, you're both black, you're both African, but they're different cultures, do you regard them as another race? He said, absolutely. Wow. And, of course, out of the mouths of babes, that's essentially so, you know, uh, with one African country having up to 100 tribes, having no central state, um, European incursion was unchecked, and instead of unifying to deal with the common threat posed to the region, on the contrary, and factricidal slave trade, um, and, and factricidal wars ensued, uh, because of the fragmentation uh, in this black race, in this in, in this environment of fragmentation, the black race and its factual reality, the black man has not needed to maintain his own societies and civilization for about five thousand years. Maybe that may be extreme. Maybe three thousand. I think it's five thousand. So you have this problem with black males not having to rear civilization-building, society-building males behind them. Therefore, that, that's going to affect their value system, and that's going to affect um, what's important to them. So they, do not, they don't value knowledge. They don't value information. They pursue mating rights instead of, of attempting to dominate the ecosystem in which, in which they reside. They value physical prowess and society over property and wealth creation. The acquisition of, uh, they question all authority, particularly black authority. They na uh, and, and, are, <laughs> and are naturally subservient to regular non-black authority. So these are the things that... Uh, has been a consequence of the black man having not having to build his own civilization, and of course, 
the thing that put him in that position is not having a centralized culture, not being unified. So one thing that a centralized culture does, you have to maintain whatever you built. If you built it, you have to maintain it. If you created it, you have to clean it. You have to see if it's vulnerable to attack. You have to look at other um, vehicles that may be uh, anything. Anything you create, you have to look at what the other people are creating uh, to to see if they're making something better than yours. So your understanding has to continue to grow. Your understanding of your instrument, your understanding of other people's instrument. So now I'm looking at culture as an instrument of building society, okay? So the black man, by not having to do that, he now does not have to look at himself or other black men in that civilization-building paradigm and so his instrument, his machine, his civilization machine has no relevance. So looking at other people, it doesn't make any sense. You know, it doesn't have any meaning to him outside of him. Uh, if anything, he wants to get in other people's machines to make them rich so he can get a good salary, which he has done. But he has had no need to build his own. He has had no need to build his own civilization his own uh, community. He, he basically helps other people. You know, it's, it's not the end of the world. You know, I played professional football. The professional NFL paid a lot of money. But if 80% of the NFL is occupied by African-Americans, certainly those Americans could, create, could have created their own, I guess, Negro League or what have you, and we would have had our own and we would own it, and we it would bring money and resources to who? Our community. But now, historically and realistically and truthfully and factually, that would be hard to do for African-American males because of that decentralization and the lack of a culture, a centralized culture. So let's get, so we'll get into the consequences of not having this uh, centralized culture. The consequences of the black man not needing to build and maintain his own civilizations and societies has become, he has become remedial in the area of military science, uh, power creation, and the acquisition and understanding of how they even work, uh, making him vulnerable to predatory ethnic groups and a marginal ally at best. Uh, we now have, uh, you know, it is said that, you know, uh, President Biden's approval ratings are very low now. And, of course, like, oh, really? His approval ratings are low with who? You know, is this a very polarized country? Um, and in instances where the economy and the, a lot of things that are almost purposely being sabotaged so that the Republicans can come back in and bring back uh, President Trump. Now, when we say approval ratings are low, what are, what are they going Who are they going to vote for? You know, it's not like, you, we're not talking about Michael Dukakis and George Bush 20 years ago, 30 years ago, where eh, it's all the same. Pretty extreme difference now, unfortunately. We need to change that. I think, um, you know, more poor people having economic prowess will help. Uh, but 
we have a lot of polarization in this country. So who who are the people who aren't approving of President Biden as if they have a, a reasonable alternative? You know, uh, and, and now that's an example of black people being a marginal ally at best. Uh, I'm a big Stacey Abrams fan. She's in, in Atlanta and Georgia. Very good leader. Very good leader. Very popular with the black community. If you ask the Republicans who they would love to have loved to have run against for the presidential le- election, it would be Stacey Abrams and Bernie Sanders. And, of course, I think Bernie Sanders is the best statesman of all of them, even Joe Biden. He's the best statesman. He seems to be the best person. But he is a socialist. He's considered a socialist. He's tailor-made for oligarchs. He's tailor-made for property owners. He's tailor-made for conservatives that want to look at him and say, look, a communist, this is what's going to happen. He's going to, they're going to take your property and what have you. So even though he's a great leader, he's, I think he's the best statesman of all of them, he was not um, strategically a good candidate uh, to run for the Democratic Party, along with Stacey Abrams and the black community for the most part, we're all over Stacey Abrams, even though she's a great leader. So I'm not saying she wasn't a good leader. I'm not saying she's not a good leader. She is a good leader. She's doing great things now. I am saying she's tailor-made for the opposite opposing side because she's considered a communist. And so the question is, why, don't, why doesn't the black community understand that? And so that's what I say, since they haven't had to maintain their own societies and civilizations, they're, they're very vulnerable. We are vulnerable to predatory ethnic groups, and we're marginal allies at best because we don't understand the big picture. And so now what that does is a consequence on that. The, the other side, the Republicans, don't have to do as much to, to win and, and, and maintain power, which they do, which they've done. They've been able to do. They have not forced them to say, we don't mind you protecting your property, but come up with a solution that can work for more people. You know, if you can't help other all people, come up with solutions that help more people. Keep building. You know, the thing about democracy, it's not an end product. It's an ever-evolving thing. And so, but the black population and its inability to understand military science its inability to understand the bigger picture, their marginalization, them being marginal allies, has only um, made things worse for everybody. The so-called black community is quick to antagonize and alienate uh, each other, disrespect one another, with an emphasis on not being disrespected. I, I've, I've run across this, this, this black woman thing that's been going on with me and black women for, 30, for like three decades. Well, ever since I retired, where I, you know, see, my history with, with females it has, not been, has not been great. Hey, I'm not Idris Elba, and none of you are either. So I don't get that much attention for women like that. So unfortunately for me and, our, and, and unfortunately for our country, unfortunately for our society, once, literally once I became a professional athlete, that whole dynamic changed. And now I better speak to other people. I better acknowledge people who clearly was never 
worry about acknowledging me. Women, men, and, you know, not just women and men. But uh, I noticed one thing with black women, and I think uh, Dr. Hockey's going to allude to this in his excerpts, uh, the, the, this dominance acknowledgement thing with them, meaning they see me before I see them. Instead of just saying, hello, what's up, how you doing, because I'm important, they wait for me to acknowledge them. And when they don't, they are mad. And when they are mad, they now go and start bickering and have other people looking at me crazy just because of them. So when we talk about this, so this is a Why couldn't they just see this? Again, their history with me is actually not very good. They tend to not pay attention to me. I'm doing, I'm being consistent with my dynamic with black women, old and young, since 1970. Right, they don't pay me much mind. I, if they look at me, I say, "Hey, what's up?" and keep it moving. You know, being a big guy, I'm a big guy, so um, I, I definitely don't have that much interest. But once that NFL and that status and that secularism and that materialism and that public takes precedence, now they are, and, and they don't have, for whatever reason, they don't feel the need to say, hey, Clarence, I heard you, you know, hey, how you doing? Or, hey, I heard you play professional football. They won't do that. They simply won't. They will sit there and wait for me to, you know, acknowledge them. Now, I'm a nice guy. I'm an asshole. So I'm not going to lie. I'm a, I mean well, but I don't play. I had a, another couple of minutes. Wanted to go over some interesting things that I wrote. I, I read in uh, Dr. Hockey's book. Uh, these excerpts are amazing. This is page 60 on his book. Uh, the last couple of minutes we're going to look at uh, black life, especially interaction between black men and women, is perceived from the outside as being fragmented, unstable, insecure, and woman-dominated. This image is solidified by white and Negro doctor, doctoral issues and mass media uh, nonsense. Now, I can tell you right now, I'm not going to say I disagree with Dr. Hockey on this. Um, the reality now, this is the fault of black men. So um, societies and civilizations have been built by men. Now, there have been women at their side. And also, we know things today that we didn't know a thousand years ago. You know, who knew that women could fight? Who knew that women could be strong? They can actually be strong and still look good. So there are different realities that exist between men and women today that did not exist even 50 years ago, that didn't exist 1,000 years, certainly didn't exist 3,000 years ago. So when I say civilizations have been built by men, for the most part, they, women have been right there nurturing. They have been right there advising. They have been right there making good men. And if we had, if we knew what we knew today, 3,000 years ago, they probably would be. But the reality is, a man, I do not want to, which is what is happening in this country, both black and white, we have a feminization of maleness. And we have uh, the masculine being something considered bad. And uh, that's something that's been, uh, black intellectuals have been doing. I have a little, a bit of a pet peeve with them, uh, so I'm not disagreeing with Dr. Hawking and what he's writing here. But 
I'm not in full agreement. I will say that. And I noticed that the so-called strong black woman, um, in many instances, a domineering black woman, a need to control black woman, and now she occupies a spot and a space in our communities, a space in our societies that black males have consistently denied, meaning they have no interest in doing this stuff. They're not that active in the community as far as voting when we need to vote and when we need to organize when there's an issue. They're not that, um, they're not interested in that. That takes a lot for them to vote. A lot of them didn't vote. So, you know, this, this, this space that a lot of black women occupy is a, a vacuumed space left vacant by many black men. However, being a man is important. And, and, and being the head of a house is important. And being a man relative, that's the, first of all, that's the main problem of the black man. Since he hasn't had to run anything, control anything, it has impacted him as an individual man in today's society. You know, simple as that. He, I, I, again, I'm in a gas station, and there's always nobody's a punk. <laughs> That's so important to black men. Nobody's a punk. So what you see is when I, and I'm a big dude, so when I walk in, the black dudes will be antagonizing me. I ain't said anything to anybody. I'll be, now obviously they're intimidated, but I'm just standing in line waiting, and they're looking crazy at me and what have you. This is, you know, you have no concept of that. It's not like you're safer in this society being this way. You're clearly not. You're clearly not safer. So what are you doing and why? So this is black zombie nation, and the black women are occupying a vacated space. But I'm still, it's not good that black women are the head of families, black women are the head of households, Black women are the head of our community. That's not necessarily a good thing. So I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sign off on that. But we also we've always had strong black women now. Don't get me wrong. We've always had strong women. So and who knows what they could have done for thousands of years if we knew that physically they could do the things they do. Gotta realize they were perceived as they even if they were strong, they were gonna have a baby and for nine months of the year, he incapacitated anyway. So that's kind of how it started, uh, I think, uh, as far as um, segmenting society based on gender. I just saw a, a WNBA. It's crazy. I don't hope I'll ever see this. I saw a WNBA women's basketball player play a game like nine months pregnant. <laughs> I couldn't believe what I saw, but I saw it. And so... Um, our whole perception as far as what women do and can do is definitely different. Uh, but men still need to be men. So I'm not with the intellectualism that tries to rationalize uh, women being the rulers of the black race because they're the only race that, that they're doing that. You know, no, no other race has that. And other races have, there are other races that have strong, successful women they don't have women that are ruling the race. So uh, this image, okay, back to Dr. Kopp, hockey. This image is solidified by white and Negro doctoral thesis and 
if there are elements of truth here, we are indeed in trouble and, and possibly headed for complete destruction as a people, which we already are, I, I believe. However, if our family's construction, as I believe, was is built upon a very positive man-woman relationship, one that has enabled us to weather the most severe form of human bondage, then only then is there hope. Um, yes, there is hope, but in the last 27 years or so, there has been serious cultural slippage in the black community to the point that black men and women are becoming antagonistic, antagonists, and deliberating cooperation, respect, liberating cooperation, respect, and single-mindedness of spirit and purpose that existed are being replaced with the most gross forms of competition, um, uh, just as, uh, uh, decadent individualism and sexual exploitation. Ah, sounds like sounds like reality TV to me. There, when you look at reality TV, you see all of what he's just talking about. You see women, both white and black, uh, showing you know a, a preference to this is what we have, this is what we're doing, this is what you got, and arguing over that. And so he does a good job of talking about the antagonism, the natural antagonism that exists uh, between these genders in our race. And now he still has to make reference to the black women looking at me. Still got to why? Why do they feel they don't have to acknowledge? See, for them to acknowledge me, that's giving an acknowledgement of respect. Why do they feel so strongly that they don't have to do that to me? But yet and still. The NFL has them giving me a whole bunch of attention. Remember now, I'm a dude that don't get any attention from women, particularly cute women. So they don't bother me. I like cute women, so I'm used to them not wanting to be bothered with me. So I'm now used to minding my own business. Why is this? Why are these women putting themselves in position where they clearly see me first, but yet don't? even give me that common courtesy to acknowledge me. So Dr. Hockey is right when he talks about the natural antagonism, but the black intellectualism usually talking to men and, and we need to respect our women and blah, 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 blah. There's some clearly some truth to that, but our women are extremely antagonistic of us. And I, I say that this is culture and the lack of a centralized culture, as I said before, can't wait to get to this next week. Uh, as I said before, uh, only culture can give you a workable dynamic between the, the genders because they give you game plans on how to resolve conflict. They give you game plans on to respect the old. They give you game plans like it's important that we take care of the young. And so this is what um, culture, a centralized culture does. Uh, that's my time this week. That's the extra 10 minutes. I love this book. I really like this book from Dr. Hockey. And like I said, I love being able to talk about stuff and even acknowledge stuff that I don't necessarily 100% agree with. I don't disagree with it, what he's saying, but there are certain things that the uh, black intellectuals are, have said that I'm not fully on board with or I don't agree fully with. So, But anyway, they're, they're here to make us think. This book is amazing. We'll get into it because there's so many things in this book that I realized that was a part of my intellectual, um, my mindset that I literally got from this book. So stuff, that, again, that I'm 
written about and thought about within the last three to five years, I can see in this book, I got it from reading this book in 1993. So clearly a very powerful book, clearly a book that's very relevant, if anything more relevant today than 1993. 1993, we thought everything was,